It's spring and you want to hike, bike, hit up the farmer's market, but the last thing you want to do on a warm, sunny morning is clean house. That's where Greenland Pro Cleaning comes in. They're eco-friendly, allergy-friendly, and locally owned in Asheville. Listeners of The Overlook get a free upholstery and refrigerator cleaning upgrade with their first booking. Just use the code PODCAST at checkout. Make the most of your time this spring and visit GreenlandProCleaning.com slash overlook. Imagine, you're a classical music composer about to premiere your final symphony. Behind the scenes, your family and a stranger are about to throw everything into disarray. Welcome to A God in the Waters, the latest play by the venerable Asheville writer David Brendan Hopes. Look for a lot of laughs, but also a deeper reflection on the making of art and its impact on the people closest to the genius at work. The Sublime Theater presents A God in the Waters, May 9th through 18th at the BB Theater in downtown Asheville. For tickets and details, go to thesublimetheater.org. I am a maker, a builder, a baker, although sometimes my messes are all that you'll find. I'll tell a story, both true and allegorial. The process is precious, so it takes up all my time. I'm Matt Pikin, and this is The Overlook Live. Today is the second of three episodes I recorded in front of an audience, September 27th at The Overlook Live, inside the Wortham Center for the Performing Arts. Performing behind me are the Resonant Rogues with their Maker song. I adopted it from the very beginning of this show as our theme song, so it's only fitting that when I share their new music and a new conversation with them later this week, that will be my 100th episode since launching The Overlook in February. Today, you'll hear my conversation with Darko Buderitz, music director of the Asheville Symphony Orchestra. We've had a great relationship since he debuted with the orchestra in 2018, only a year after I arrived at Blue Ridge Public Radio. Here, we talk about how the orchestra pivoted this season after city officials deemed Thomas Wolfe Auditorium uninhabitable because of outdated and non-functional infrastructure. But as Darko and I often do, we also dive into other corridors. I ask about why this orchestra only performs monthly programs and why he and other directors of symphonic orchestras don't look to collaborate more with contemporary rock and pop composers. Of course, you'll want to hear the great thought and candor Darko puts into answering those questions. Darko, when you first learned that the orchestra would have to make do in other venues, what did you do? What What was your first reaction artistically, organizationally? What? How did you feel and think? My feeling... Always when, when crisis presents in life, is it's easy to get gloomy and focus on the negative. And every cloud has a silver lining. And I think, in a way, we've come out of the whole crisis in a silver cloud. 
as opposed to just the silver lining. Explain that a little bit. You asked me what's the first thing that we did. The state of the Thomas Wolf as the only permanent tenant of the venue, we were well aware of the things that were needed and were a shortcoming for many years. Thomas Wolf had actually closed twice before. It just happened to be during the pandemic that they were not operational. And then in 2018, it was during the summer, only two acts were affected. So the public really, you know, doesn't see that side. Uh, the auditorium is maintained and they, the staff there do a great job with the resources they have. But as we know, major capital improvements were not able to be done in previous decades. And so the symphony looked out and made a point to explore alternative venues. And in, beginning actually with the end of the pandemic in 2021, we performed in Diana Wortham for our recorded distanced show. So we explored this venue. We had concerts at Central United Methodist. And then this last spring, fortuitously, we had a concert at First Baptist Church of Asheville. And so as soon as that happened, we had already experiences that we could draw on. And with all venues, seating size is the issue. Dinah Wortham is approximately 550 seats in the big theater. The Central United Methodist, I want to say, is about 750-800 seats. And then First Baptist Church of Asheville is largest at about 900-950, depending how many seats are used. Versus Thomas Wolfe, where is that? 2,600 capacity. Huge it's, difference. It's a huge difference. And not that you fill Thomas Wolfe every concert, but there, there's a lot you can do with that. No, but once a year, like when we have Bela Fleck, that concert sells out and actually helps make up the financial challenges for us. Okay. The three venues we looked at, and the first response when I heard about the air conditioning system failing and looking that this is going to be not just a short-term I said, let's look into extending the stage at First Baptist Church of Asheville. And in the spring, we performed in the regular space where the altar is, and we were able to field an orchestra of approximately 35 to 40 players. The Asheville Symphony, on a typical concert, employs between 65 and 70 musicians. And I cannot stress enough how wonderful it was working with the leadership at First Baptist Church. They were incredibly cooperative, and over the summer, we built a stage extension, which allows us to field the entire orchestra. So it's about, it, instead of the space, let's say, between the woodwinds and strings being 10 feet, is not, it is now 25 feet total. And that new space is not only space for musicians, but has done another amazing thing. It's made out of wood. It's a giant resonating wood box. And we had the first concert this weekend. The orchestra has never sounded this good. And I would hazard to say even in its history, because we've never been able to feel the entire orchestra in a resonant space. I feel like a kid in a candy store. My musicians are leaving concerts beaming with smiles ear to ear. The audience tells me, we never knew you could sound like this. This sounds completely different. And I say, yes. It's no secret that acoustic issues have long plagued Thomas Wolfe Auditorium, not to mention the greater hall beyond it, the now Harris Cherokee Center. So knowing that, and, and, and I'm sure you anticipated that there would be an acoustic boost, what has this mandated from the orchestra's standpoint in terms of what needs to happen if Thomas Wolfe is repaired slash renovated slash replaced? That's a, a very long-term view. I think currently we're looking at the short term mainly, which is that 
every concert now basically ends up costing $20,000 more. Because and we're coming out of a balanced budget. The reason why is we're doing two performances to have our audience come. And as I mentioned, that's, Saturday only 18, matinee. that's 1,800 seats max. Yeah, so let's be clear. So you're performing a Saturday matinee in addition to the Saturday in evening to the Saturday concert. Evening, yes. So, so talk more about the costs. The cost is the cost of the extra service is uh, approximately twenty thousand dollars when it's all said and done. So seven concerts, it it adds up quickly. Those are not just for our musicians, but also for the soloists, and it takes resources to run the venue for the concert as well. So that is the difficult challenge, and what we're focused on organizationally is to find ways to go forward and find ways to to balance our budget and be be profitable during a period that's going to be very difficult for us. I love that you started this conversation earlier saying how we're both risk takers and we like doing different things. And right now it's very exciting because we have to think outside of the box, what kind of projects can we do to protect what we have? It's always easy with any problem in life just to say, let's cut it and let's cut the orchestra down, do a chamber orchestra series, this kind of stuff. We want to protect what we have, which is a beautiful series of wonderful classical music in downtown Asheville over these seven concerts. How can we find projects outside that will help be profitable, that will help sustain the Asheville Symphony during the period that we don't have access to a performance space? You're talking about projects outside. The Symphony Orchestra already does Alt-ASO, which is a, a series that you undertook. When you talk about extra things, are you talking about those kinds of things? Those will certainly continue. For uh, listeners and our audience here who may not know, Alt-ASO is concerts that are taken outside of the traditional venues. We've performed at Highland Brewing. We've performed... The Orange Peel. Orange Peel, Grove Park in different locations. In, the Masonic in Temple, and that's going to be this season. Masonic Temple is coming up this year. That's yeah. a big one this year. And those are smaller ensembles that usually feature on a guest artist, and we custom arrange repertoire, and it's not tied to classical music. It's tied to all music, literally, because what's the difference? In the words of Duke Ellington, there's two types of mu- music, good and the other one. <laughs> right, so this is something that I wondered I moved here from bigger cities where they, there are orchestras that perform every week of the season. And Asheville has seemed like to me an, a city that could support an orchestra that has more concerts. And when I looked at the schedule, yes, they're performing two concerts of every program. It's not just one opportunity to see the orchestra. Even if you performed one weekend a month, And I was wondering, why is it just a Saturday concert? Why can't it be a Friday night concert and a Saturday night concert and a Sunday matinee? Is this city just too small to support an orchestra like that? Actually, I think the first thing that unfortunately gives the answer no to that question is venue. So Sunday concerts, because we're in a church, are not practical. Now, the interesting thing is musicians of the Asheville Symphony, many of them are based in Asheville, but many of them come from outside, from further afield. And this is the life for most, I would say most professional orchestras in the country have this model where the musicians are not full-time members, employees of the symphony. Rather, every weekend they're playing with a different orchestra and they cobble a living with a balance of performance versus teaching versus other activities. And so as a result, the orchestra schedule standard in the country generally is Wednesday through Saturday. 
Monday and Tuesday leave opportunity for players to do teaching and earn different types of income and also have maybe have a break. Maybe that's their weekend if they're playing Sundays at church or doing something else or they're te- if they're at university, which many of our uh, players in the Asheville Symphony do. Their lessons can be loaded up on those two days so that they have the evening free to come to play with an orchestra. So there's a cultural pattern in the industry which dictates it. So in our case, our rehearsal schedule, we start on Wednesday night, our first rehearsal. We have one rehearsal on Thursday night. The soloist arrives on Thursday evening. Friday afternoon is the rehearsal with the soloist. Friday evening is the dress rehearsal. And then two concerts on Saturday. So it's a lot of playing. Between Friday and Saturday, the musicians are doing a total of nine hours of playing in a 36-hour period. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Friends, that is incredibly fatiguing. Wow. My, My hat goes off to everybody in the orchestra for truly... So beyond the acoustic boost that you're getting, how is this season informing what you think the orchestra will do regardless of where you're performing seasons going forward? It's uh, very exciting. You know, as I mentioned, Wednesday is the first rehearsal night. So last Wednesday, exactly a week ago, I, I got to the hall and I'm setting up the chairs with our operations team and... We're trying to find, can we actually fit everything on stage? Because it's all great doing math in your head, but people need space. How much space exactly for a string player versus a woodwind player? It You can't really know until you get in the space. And this hall at First Baptist Church of Asheville is basically able to field about 85 to 90% of the repertoire. So repertoire changes are not an issue. The only change on the season we've had that we had to make was with our concert involving the Asheville Symphony Chorus. The piece was too big to fit both the chorus and the orchestra on the same stage. So the chorus for this season will be performing with us here in Diana Wortham. We'll be performing Haydn's St. Nicholas Mass with them in February. So that's the only change that had to happen. But now October is a month when season planning begins for all orchestra in full earnest. And the first thing I'm thinking about here's this new space. What are things that we could do outside of the box? What would sound good in there that would never sound good in a hall like Thomas Wolfe? Obviously, pieces that maybe are in smaller forces and need resonance to speak and be connected with the audience are top of mind. One thought that came to my mind this weekend was, maybe we should look at Bach, an evening of Bach. Because that's a composer that really doesn't work. We performed the Bach double concerto a couple of years ago. It literally could not be heard past the first 20 rows in Mm. Thomas Wolfe. So uh, these are things that I'm thinking about. There's also an organ in the church. It's not the best instrument in the world. It's not not a pipe organ, is it? It's a pipe organ. It is is a pipe organ. It it needs... It's... I wouldn't say it's in the best shape, but it's usable, certainly. So, like, are there pieces that organ could take part in? That would be a cool experience for the audience to experience. These are the, the things that, that come to me. Another thought that, that came this weekend in a suggestion of a friend was, what about works by Garibaldi? Garibaldi was a Venetian composer who composed for St. Mark's Cathedral, the great cathedral in Venice. And specifically, he wrote brass pieces that used the acoustic space of the cathedral and spread them out spatially across the space. So would that be something that, that we could explore? I'm going to think about it. it. I really feel like a kid in a candy store right now. Does First Baptist and perhaps even other churches, cathedrals, open up space for chamber works? I mean, you're a symphonic orchestra. Sure. I'm wondering if that's something to even get more intimate. Let me be very specific. Chamber orchestra, yes. Chamber music, string quartets, things like that, 
we have the chamber music series in Asheville, and they do that really well. So we are good partners. We don't want to step on their toes, and that is their market. But if there's an opportunity to illuminate a big concert with a solo recital or something like that, we're open to that idea. And, and that's what's happening this spring with the residency of Noah Bendix Bogley, who is, I don't know if, if our listeners know, but he's the concert master of the Berlin Philharmonic. Literally, the leader of the best orchestra in the world is from Asheville. And so we're so excited to bring him back and work with him. I'm, I'm just thrilled about that project in particular. More after this. When you go to an Asheville City soccer club game, you're not just watching soccer, you're welcomed into what players and fans call the South Slope Blues. The South Slope Blues, they're amazing. This is the coach of the women's team, Brooke Bingham. The atmosphere is what makes Asheville City Soccer so great. Longtime player, Laura Greb. We have the most dedicated fans. We have our South Slope Blues. They post up in the corner of the field every game. They've got their drums, they've got their smoke, they've got their loud voices. You can hear them for miles. Elite men and women players from throughout North Carolina team up in Asheville for a two-month season against other aspiring pros from all over the Southeast. Home games this season begin May 18th at Greenwood Field on the UNC Asheville campus. For details, tickets, and your first steps into the South Slope Blues, visit Asheville City Soccer Club at AshevilleCitySC.com. You've been music director now for five seasons and not counting the dark pandemic year. You've seen this city, you've come to know this city. Does it matter where you perform your classical music beyond the venue itself? Would you be programming differently in, say, Knoxville or Greenville or Kansas City or, or Minot, North Dakota. And you've been to Missoula, Montana. Uh, you, yeah. you, you yeah. were music director in Missoula, Montana. You're music director still in, ta- in Tallahassee. Yes. What's different about programming for the Asheville Symphony? Oh, that's a great question, Matt. That's why I asked it. I actually, I think Asheville more than, more than even Missoula. Missoula wants to be mini Portland, but it's not. Not quite yet. And Asheville is far more eclectic in its tastes in everything that people get excited about. And for me, I think actually, if I had to summarize it, I don't think there's one taste in Asheville, which actually, from a music director's perspective, is very exciting because I think we can present crazy projects that there is a market for. There are people who will come out. This last spring, yes, everybody knows Bela Fleck, so that's easy to sell. But we did a concert with Kishibashi, who is a Japanese-American violinist. Yeah, we have a... Fa- All right. That was great. I yeah. was there. That was a great I loved great it. Concert. That was one of my favorite performances of the year. He, number one, incredible musician, beautiful charts. He wrote his own charts. They're, they're so well-written. Mike Savino, Tall Tall Trees, was there as a co-guest artist. And that uh, was at Salvage Station. It was at Salvage Station outside. Half the audience is the symphony usuals. Half the people are in the mosh pit. I mean, it was... I'm like, this is Asheville. This is Asheville. And this is what's actually very exciting to take note about and to think about programming that way. Can we find other opportunities to collaborate in such a way? Because I really think that... People love music in this town. 
And I think the symphony orchestra unfairly gets a poor reputation in popular culture as being a, a place that's not welcoming. It is absolutely welcoming. Trust me, we're just people. We love playing music and we love playing our kind of music. Who cares what it is, what it sounds like? Every, everybody's got their own niche. The mo- main thing is we do it with quality, we do it with passion. So when you come, you feel something. That's what great music does. And for me, Kishibashi did that as much as the Brahms Symphony did this weekend. I was just as excited with both performances. One of the things I talked to you about years ago and I asked you and I, t- I still want to see happen and I don't know why more orchestras don't do this, why they don't avail themselves of composers who are working in contemporary rock music, hip hop, other music and commission pieces or interpretations of their music or new music. I know there are Bryce and Aaron Desner of the National. They have done stuff with the Cincinnati Symphony because they're from Cincinnati there are other composers, singularly Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead, who has composed classical music unto himself. Why can't Asheville or why isn't Asheville or other symphony orchestras working directly with some of these composers who don't work in classical music to help broaden the universe of classical music and, by extension, the fan base of classical music? That's a, a great question, and I think I have an answer for you. When you go to a Radiohead concert, do you expect to hear a symphony orchestra? No, but uh, that's with an asterisk. Likewise, my, my question is with an asterisk. It's part of the expectation of promise of what you're doing. And it all comes down to finances and money. The, the symphony orchestra, the arts, performing arts in general, it's all about surviving and making making your budget balanced and not completely going bankrupt. Um, Is it, but before you so, continue that thought, and I, yes. watch you, I don't want to interrupt that, but are, are orchestras on that precipice of being solvent or going bank, bankrupt? Some are. Kitchener-Waterloo Symphony in Ontario closed their doors less than a week before their opening night without telling them their musicians. And they're bankrupt. And it is tragic. It's 50 musicians who depended on their livelihood in that town, full-time salaries, full-time members. Nothing. No explanation, just doors closed. But I think that's where creativity and adaptation really matters. I don't think you can just be your grandpa's symphony orchestra. You have to think. So back to the question, Radiohead. Like, yeah. So... It's an economic issue, actually, and it stems from the subscription model. So if you think about it, if, you, if anywhere in the world currently, subscription model is what allows for cash flow in an orchestra. It's what allows the orchestra to be able to have a budget, to have funds, and to be able to count on what works, what doesn't. Meaning selling season tickets. Meaning selling season tickets, exactly. That subscription was rooted in the European traditional repertoire since the founding of the symphony orchestra as an institution in North America. That's changing now. But if your budget is basically balanced, losing 20% of your audience because you don't deliver on the promise of what is expected is a great risk to take. And I think many symphony orchestras have a really difficult time taking that risk. I think we've struck a nice balance with our programming that we can push that risk, like Ishibashi, like Bela Fleck, actually, Bela Fleck would have been considered an outright pops concert about 20 years ago. Why? Why has it evolved to now it's not? I think tastes are changing, and we're able to change that. It's a generational change. Younger people have different tastes, and aren't, it's not just about Brahms, Beethoven, Tchaikovsky anymore. So you think what I was 
hungering to see might be beyond the budget capabilities of most orchestras, but yet working with some of these musicians who do cross over into other genres, there are ways to do that within uh, a more uh, financially feasible way, whether it's that they are reimagining their own music and want to bring it to an orchestra yes. or the yes. way you did it with Kishibashi. And yes. It really is fine. It's being creative. And that's why actually most of our creativity happens outside of the masterworks. We keep the masterworks. I think it's... Explain people, the Masterworks a little bit. So I should say, every, uh, the, with the subscription model, the Masterworks series is orchestras that basically you're playing music written specifically for orchestra. And most of it is written, is older music by composers who are the height of the repertoire is late 19th century. That's what's probably most performed in symphony orchestras worldwide. Of course, there's new pieces, new music, but th- these are composers that have a niche following that are not well-known like popular music is nowadays. It's not Taylor Swift overture. Maybe we should call her and ask her. You know, will, that, be, will that happen someday? You saw how much her boyfriend got attention this weekend. I, I think, it, you know, maybe it's... It, I, let me ask you I'm, along I'm, that. Are there, are there ways to take existing music that aren't in the canon of classical music and make them classical music? You could. I'm not sure it does service to the original music. If I could, I'm sure I could commission and, and make a, a theme and variations on Yesterday by the Beatles, for example. I'm sure. But does, yeah. that, is that better than Yesterday? No, it isn't. Who says it has to be better necessarily? But it could be created a reinterpretation. There's a band called Tool. Okay. They are a '90s to even to today. They're a heavier band, and I have long heard a suite of their music done by classical okay. a, a classical orchestra. And if I were somebody like Nico Muley or somebody else who could compo- could rearrange right. music, I would do that. Why isn't that being done? Because it, it wouldn't cost an orchestra a lot of money necessarily to do. If you were to take Tool's repertoire and make a suite of music that lasted 45 minutes, you would have an international story. <laughs> I love it. It would be done. It would be, you'd have all kinds of press. You'd have you'd sell out Thomas Wolfe. I just don't know why that's not the, being the done. reason it's not happening, Matt. I think is with large orchestras, it's a kind of project that they're not interested in. Yeah, you mean an old guard? There's an old guard, a little bit. I shouldn't generalize. It really, there. It's not black and white. But your, large orchestras, it's harder to do those things. Your donors, you have and your, your your musicians are in a union. You can't just bring a combo off the street and say, you guys are playing this. And then there's the, the things are, they're very kind of stiff elements of the model mm. that prevent that kind of creativity at large levels. Now, we could do that. But then I ask, how? Let's take this project. The band is called Tool? Yes. We would have to find time to reach out to Tool, hope they pick up the phone, Present, we're an orchestra in Western North Carolina in the mountains, and we're interested in making an album of music. Would you be interested? Okay, maybe they say yes. Then you get into the legal side is how do you get permission to actually do the music? Rights for anything which is under copyright are tremendously expensive. Even to do a small pop song can cost $500 to $1,000. That's not recording. That's just performing it. So the the element of rights and recording are very difficult. We faced this starkly during COVID when we were trying to stream music. We had to be very careful not to include music that that had difficult copyright elements around it because 
we couldn't afford the licensing. We couldn't afford that element. When the, we have the resources, it's not interesting. When you want to do it, there's the resource element becomes prohibitive. I think bottom line for Asheville, we do try to think outside of the box. We're always trying to think how can we bring what we do best to the largest area of our community, the largest number of people. How can we expand? And Alteso was part of that. What other orchestra can say that they did a concert with both with the former Phantom from the tour that we had a gypsy brass band ensemble melded with New Orleans jazz. The, the creativity is there. It's just one little step at a time. And yeah. that's how we build a new audience, which you, I think what is most important. Yeah. You mentioned to me before we sat in our seats that the city has at least committed or expressed deep interest in a real substantive repair of Thomas Wolfe or renovation. Can you talk about this, what you learned? Yeah, yesterday at City Council of Asheville, there was a public working meeting. It was the first time that the issues of Thomas Wolfe were presented with some options of how to solve this. And of course, the Band-Aid is necessary for the facility to function in the short term. But the beautiful thing that, that I was impressed by was that City Council looked at the different options that ranged from do nothing to basically build the best performing arts center in North America, and really focused their gaze on solutions that would transform Thomas Wolfe into something that I think we as a community would be very proud of. And that is that a theater that could accommodate somewhere close to 2,000 seats and basically be a home for arts, performances, acoustic music, talks, dance, so much all more, kinds of things that we more, don't get currently in the community. It would be a more versatile Thomas Wolfe than we have now. We have to remember Thomas Wolfe was not constructed as a... As a versatile a, hall. A, a versatile hall or a hall for concerts even. I, I would say... I have, a, I have a great analogy. So a great concert hall is a shoebox. This is tested. This is like anywhere you go, if you have a shoebox, it works. Thomas Wolfe, in its current configuration, unfortunately, is an Amazon Prime box that has had its bottom squished in. And the sound in the hall is very problematic. It's, that's, that's why it has poor acoustics. So I think if, of course, this is a long road ahead, there's a lot of work to be done. It, uh, it will take a village. It's not going to be one person or one organization pushing this. We, we'll have to find a, a coalition of, of people who are passionate about the arts, who are passionate about the future of downtown Asheville, and bring them together to, to make this vision a reality. But I think it really would be transformative. And, I, of course, I have my music director hat as the, the symphony guy. But I'm thinking of being a citizen in, in this town. There is so much of performing arts that we don't have an opportunity to see because... That sweet spot of about 2,000 seats really allows for different projects to take place. I hope you save me a seat and two seats at your next First Baptist concert. I want to come. Would love to. Pictures at an exhibition. I think you'll have a great time. Thank you. Darko Buderitz, everybody, from the Asheville Symphony Orchestra. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank my guest today, Darko Buderitz of the Asheville Symphony Orchestra. Remember, we have one more episode to go from my evening of the Overlook Live, recorded live at the Wortham Center for the Performing Arts. You'll get to hear the resonant rogues talking about their life in music and hear them perform new songs from their upcoming self-titled album that nobody has heard yet. Remember, that episode comes out in just a couple of days. Stay tuned for that. 
Many in the audience for The Overlook Live attended for free because they are supporters of The Overlook through my Patreon campaign. You can find out more and join them too at patreon.com slash theoverlookpodcast. And you can keep up with all things The Overlook by signing up for our free newsletter at podavl.com slash newsletter. I'm Matt Pikin, and I want to thank you for being part of The Overlook. In the morning To pick up my pencil Make some lines If I just listen To the whisper Of the faintest of tunes In my head If I allow myself The paper Then not it'll tumble In my bed I am a maker A builder, a baker Although sometimes my messes Are you'll find I'll tell a story both true and allegory oh the process is precious though it takes a long Hey everyone, Matt Pikin here from The Overlook, and I'll get back to my conversation in just a moment. But I'm asking you, the listener, yes, you, listening this very moment, is The Overlook making a difference in your connection to Asheville? Do you know more about what makes this city tick and where we're struggling? If you had to give up one cup of coffee every month to do your part to keep this show going, would you step up? If you answered yes to any of that, and I really hope you did, Please join dozens of other listeners by supporting The Overlook with Matt Pikin through my Patreon campaign by giving just $5 a month. Give it higher levels and you'll earn free tickets to my live podcasting events. Your support means the world to me and helps keep this show free for anyone to hear. Go to patreon.com slash theoverlookpodcast.